My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Hello, 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 and welcome to this edition of the Subversive Podcast. I'm Alex Kashuta, and today with me is uh, Indian Bronson. Indian Bronson is a uh, anonymous Twitter user, um, which I've known for his excellent contributions on subjects ranging from, you know, politics to dating to any sort of real world phenomenon that needs a uh, sane lens. So welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's awesome to have you here. Um, I wanted you to be one of uh, the first guests on this show because I feel like I've learned a lot from reading your contributions, your comments on my posts, and obviously, um, everything else you post. So, um, Thank you so much. I'm very flattered. Oh, thank you. Um, I think my first question is, you know, because we've had so much agitation around the, the recent elections, I found your contributions to the discussion really sobering uh, because they are they're kind of from that, you know, a bit of a, you know, Curtis Yarvin position. You're very much outside of the conversation, You're not necessarily um, involved uh, emotionally, it seems to me, um, that you have kind of a very sober perspective on it. Um, and you've been, um, even though I, I feel like your, your, your temperament is conservative, you've not really uh, involved yourself that much in the Trump victory and, you know, the, you're not really a GOP person. So can you tell me a bit about what, what your perspective is and how you can be so calm about everything? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not 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 a GOP person. I mean, you know, I'm I'm quite I'm in a sense I'm essentially anti-GOP. Um, yeah, no. So so uh, I used to work for the GOP, um, but uh, the, the easiest way to understand it is that you know, if you wanted Trump to win, you need to think about why you wanted Trump to win. Um, and, you know, a, a common a common argument is, well, if Trump wins, it'll own the libs, right? You, there's, a, there's a lot of owning of libs that, that people want to see. Um, this is essentially not enough. And it, it conceals uh, something much darker, which is that, you know, Trump, for his, his presidency and his campaign, kind of operated in a way that he would throw out what's called in American politics, um, uh, it's it's called red meat, um, like you're throwing red meat to a bunch of salivating dogs, and you're just sort of you know giving them what they want to hear. Um, but it's it's kind of misleading because you know dogs dogs do pretty well when you feed them red meat. Um, there's another uh, nutritional term in in American English, empty calories. If you're if you're eating potato chips or whatever, right, you're getting empty calories. You're getting all the calories and none of the nutrients, and that's really what owning the libs is. Um, it is it is popcorn. Um, it's, it's potato chips mm -hmm. and what it, what it covers up is that, uh, Trump is, Trump is Jeb Bush with, you know, a spicy Twitter. Um, it's very hard to look at the contours of the Trump presidency 
and see someone who is fundamentally challenging the status quo. Not in terms of, you know, obviously his, his aesthetics are totally contrary to sort of staid, you know, Mitt Romney style republicanism. Um, the, the, the sort of things that he would say that are out of step with modern liberalism, you know, famously, uh, you know, they're, they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, you know, that's sort of, that, that is getting at a truth about mass immigration that is incompatible with uh, the liberal synopsis on immigration. You know, that's, that's all fine, but in terms of actual policy where the, the rubber meets the road of what actually happens as a result of him being in office, uh, the result is, you know, we've really just had President Kushner for four years. And um, that, that's why, you know, that's, that's part of the reason that I was pretty sure he would lose. Um, and so we'll obviously have to talk about the fraud, the fraud allegation, but I was pretty sure he would lose because, you know, his victory in 2016 was really not an overwhelming one. Um, he won the state of Michigan by 10,704 votes. Um, you know, we're, we're not even talking 1% of the vote. We're talking, you know, fractions of a percentage of the, of the, of the vote in terms of margin. Um, and this is against Hillary Clinton, one of the least liked candidates in modern history. You know, the, the, the idea that he could not possibly lose against Joe Biden, a former vice president endorsed by one of our most popular presidents, Barack Obama, um, after four years of media onslaught, um, where Joe Biden is just fundamentally a likable guy, you know, he's he's a, you know, he's a tall, white guy who has, you know, sort of blue collar pronouncements. You know, I remember very clearly um, from uh, from when Obama was running. There's this video of him talking. It's a very funny video. There's this video of him talking to an Indian person in I think Delaware. And he's saying something like, you cannot go into a 7-Eleven without a slight Indian accent. And he's, you know, just laughing and joking. And I, you know, it's hilarious, right? You know, it's, 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 there's, you know, you have to be a liberal basically to get angry at something like that. You have to be one of the libs that's getting known to get angry at something like that. Um, the idea that there was no way that this guy could beat Trump is just, is just bunkum uh, on the face of it. And then you add in that Trump is no longer an unknown quantity. Trump really just didn't deliver on the promises that he made to the sort of marginal voters, uh, the voters who really determine the margin of these states number in the tens of thousands. Um, you know, a huge proportion of Trump's support in 2016 were people who just voted for Romney the last time around. You know, a, a huge proportion of Tucker Carlson's audience is also Sean Hannity's audience. You know, it's, they, they just go from Tucker to Sean Hannity and they don't even perceive a difference. Um, so, you know, given all of that, it wasn't surprising to me that he lost. But then on the fraud issue, you know, yeah, machine Democrats doing shady shit is not, uh, you know, it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. And if, if, there's, if there's anything that people should learn at this point, it's that American politicians and American political institutions are corrupt beyond repair. So, yeah, it could have, it could have been fraud, um, sure. But um, even if it's even if you know the strongest case of fraud is is assumed that Trump overwhelmingly won, and it's only through fraud that the electoral count is is arraigned against him. Uh, what's he going to do about it? 
you know, he could actually, you know, he, he, he could do a lot of crazy stuff right now as, as the president. He's not doing any of it. Yeah. Um, that's actually my because you you know being being an insider and kind of knowing how the the sausage is made um i think you know a lot of people observing this especially from from afar as i am um one are wondering like how you know how vast are the actual presidential powers how much you know what he's done is one thing what he could have done is a different thing i mean the 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 profound infusion of all institutions in america by you know kind of the the liberal yeah. establishment well, or well, power power is kind of you know power is a matter of habit and self-belief you know like obviously you know when when we say something like you know president declared war on i don't know moldova uh you know let's say an american president declared a, a war on moldova he's obviously not physically going over there and fighting Moldova as a single person, right? You know, all he—he's—he's not—he's also not coercing the chain of command. You know, he's not winning arm wrestling matches with everyone in the Joint Chiefs on down to you know some private to get them to do this stuff. Um, essentially, there's just this structure of authority where people say, "Whomever the president is, we have to follow what he says," um, and. Uh, this is just obviously not true for Trump because he never commanded that kind of respect. He never exercised authority in that way. You know, there, there was that article, um, I believe in Newsweek, where, you know, of course, an unnamed defense official said, you know, when Trump gave the, the order to withdraw from Syria, we just didn't. We just told him that we did, and then we just didn't withdraw, and there's still U.S. forces there. Um and and the fact that Trump hasn't really responded to something like that, the fact that, you know, our Afghan withdrawal is still going to leave, you know, 2,500 troops there, um, you know, it, it, it speaks to his level of, I think, basically cowardice. Um, you know, and this is, this is true of Obama as well. You know, Obama, just, you know, he's probably putty in the hands of, of the generals of the defense establishment and the intelligence establishment. You know, he pledged he would close Guantanamo when, when he was elected. That never happened, right? You know, because a train of people with brass on their uniforms and a train of people from, from the intelligence community were probably brought in to just sort of browbeat them and say, well, you know, if you do this and Americans die, it'll be on you, blah, 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 blah. Um, and uh, yeah, no, Trump, Trump, like Obama, is just not the sort of guy who will really stand up to that kind of power and assert the presidency. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to think about it. You know, if any, if any of your listeners are in the military, you know, what, you know I imagine, imagine the op order Trump would have to write in order to get all troops out of Afghanistan now, right? Like he'd have to get transcom, he'd have to get air mobility, have to get all of these people in a room and you have to be like all right look you're going to do an accounting of all personnel um you know obviously everyone's recalled in from the wire you're gonna have to account for all personnel you're gonna have to figure out what sort of stuff you're gonna leave behind you know you have to figure out a timetable for for all of these flights you have to provide security you know th th there are a lot of moving bits to getting all troops out of an area um but we've obviously done it we have the capability to do it but does Trump even understand what that means? You know, probably not. You know, this is this is something that's just sort of beyond him. And do you, do you believe that if if there was a you know a different caliber of leader, you know, at the 
helm of the GOP or maybe even as an independent, um, someone who actually understood, you know, what the what the machinations are at least and, and had a little bit of respect, you know, would would they be able to have these uh, kind of uh, autocratic powers and and actually? Well, it's, it's it's not it's not even it's not even autocratic, right? So like you know, um, Barack Obama understood what the judiciary was on immigration. He understood that if he just extended uh, residency right to people called Dreamers, right? So there's something called the Dream Act. It never passed. Uh, it was introduced in the early 2000s. Uh, but that population was then served by something called uh, DACA. He, he understood that if he just did DACA by an executive order, it would take a long time for challenges to worm their way up to the Supreme Court. And probably it would become politically untenable for anyone to reverse it. And that's exactly what happened, right? Um, he understood that the judiciary, uh, the pipeline of people who become lawyers, the kinds of people that become immigration attorneys, um, not just, you know, state's attorneys, but the kinds of people actually, you know, making the sausage in, in immigration court. He understood that they're all sort of on the side of mass amnesty. So he, he just effectuated the outcome. And uh, it's, it's become impossible to overturn. Um, but would this be, would this work uh, if, if it wasn't kind of uh, flowing with the mainstream? Because essentially, right. would, done... could, 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 someone, could someone who understands this do it from the right? Yeah. So, you know, one of what, you know, in, in, in many arguments with people who, you know, sort of unironically support Trump and carry a lot of water for Trump and excuse that sort of thing. Um, I point to all of the budget bills that he signed for Paul Ryan. You know, repeatedly Trump had a chance to say, look, I'm just going to veto every bill that you give me unless you bring a vote on the wall and fording and, and, you know, funding border security to the, to the Senate floor, to the Congress floor. Um, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan could have done that. Um, and instead, you know, Paul Ryan detailed how he just sort of told him a story about, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll vote on the wall later, but you just got to sign this uh, debt ceiling rise, you know, and this is, you know, this stuff sounds like old history to us now, but, you know, Trump had a choice. He could have either said, you know, I'm not going to raise the debt ceiling and I will let the U.S. default or you can just do what I want and do what the voters voted us in for um, and pursue this immigration stuff. And, and Trump didn't have the focus to do that. Trump didn't have the balls to do that. Um, but a president who did could have done that. Um, but Trump was never that guy. Uh, so it's not like we even lost anything. Trump was just never the sort of person who would be able to hold these issues in his head and come to a conclusion like that. And one of the biggest pieces of evidence for it is, is Jared Kushner, basically. You know, um, we, we can talk about Trump's instincts being very good, but ultimately Trump's you know, real instincts lead him to a place where uh, he let Kushner run the show in the White House for, for four years. So when when people get overwrought about, oh, you know, the Democrats stole the election and no, if we can't get Trump back in in 2024, it's all over. It's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, they're wrong. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, you know, not not only does it not matter that he's gone, in a way it's kind of good that he's gone because what you what you're starting to see um, and it's for it's for a bad reason. Um, so you know, one of one of my favorite uh, Twitter mutuals, who is, I believe, currently deactivated right now, uh, Second City bureaucrat. Uh, he he posed a question. You know, 
the, the accelerationists out there think it's a good thing that you know sort of the the, the boomer waffen the uh, you know these these you know these worked up boomer con people are just like going nuts about the GOP in Georgia, and I think it's a good thing. Um, the fact that American voters who are right of center are sort of losing their conditioning about the GOP being you know a uh, uh, a good, an absolute good, the fact that they're willing to think of the GOP as an enemy entity and oppose the GOP, um, even if it's for a very bad reason, even if for that reason is, you know, conspiracies about, you know, Kemp's uh, daughter's boyfriend being murdered or conspiracies about a CIA shootout in Germany over Dominion serve, you know, even if they're opposing the GOP for completely bad shit, crazy reasons, at least they're learning that the GOP is not their friend. And that is, um, you know, the crazy QAnon uh, MAGA conspiracy stuff is, is obviously dumb, but uh, at least they're learning, uh, at, at least they're learning that they, you know, they, they don't owe their allegiance um, in perpetuity to the GOP. And that's, that's a very good thing. Um, so, you know, for those reasons, it's kind of like, you know, who's, who's losing big here? Uh, basically, the people that are, are losing big are this, you know, class of, you know, we call them grifters, uh, which is, you know, a very old-timey phrase, but it's, you know, it's part of the lexicon now. People that are losing really big with a Trump loss are the grifters who just sort of honed in on the presidency after he won and you know, kind of defined MAGA in this gross, you know, hyper-liberal way. Um, you know, great example is Lady MAGA. Um, you know, when I voted for Trump and liked to Trump in 2015, I was like, stop illegal immigration, maybe change the narrative on legal immigration, fix our borders, you know, uh, no more stupid wars, uh, no more stupid trade deals, put America first. I had no idea we were going to get transgender or drag queens called Lady. I, you know, that, that was not on the menu. Um, but apparently, <laughs> you know, you know, Charlie Kirk, a good friend of the president, has pictures of Lady Maga, you know, gets, gets invited to all this stuff. Um, yeah. They're losing big, um, sort of the kind of, you know, GOP establishment that has taken uh, Americans for a ride for decades. They're losing big. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all of this kind of false populism and false nationalism that is really getting beaten down. By Trump losing. Uh, so in that sense, it's kind of a good thing. Um, obviously, you know, President Kamala Harris and sock puppet Biden are going to be terrible, but it's, you know, whatever. Yeah, the, the underpinnings of this um, kind of boomer, old school GOP turning point, Charlie Kirk thing, the, the philosophical underpinnings of it are just so thin that it's essentially, you know, it's about five minutes away from from turning into liberalism as well. Like well, it, it, it is liberalism. That's that's the yeah. thing. Right? There, there's only there's only one real politics in the U.S. and it is liberalism. Right. So, you know, one of one of the unfortunate things that uh, Buckley did to our language was we, we have this fake paradigm in American politics of conservative versus liberal. And it's really conservative liberals versus progressive liberals. Everyone's a liberal. Right. You know, the, the entire basis of free market capitalism, rugged individualism, all of this is coming from an enlightenment liberal framework. Um, 
And it's why conservatives keep losing. You know, if you believe in uh, individual equality and individual freedom and, you know, the consumer is always right, uh, you really don't have an argument against transgender drag queens. Exactly. Um, exactly. So you're you're yeah. in agreement with me that the uh, the origins of our, our current uh, disorder are not in like the '60s in a, in a group of no 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 French no. people. They go, um, they go much 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 earlier. Um, you know, at least at least the glorious revolution. I don't I don't want to go full Yarvin because he can do it much better than I can. But um, you know, yeah. At, at at least you have to look. You know, you should look at you should look at the 1941 Atlantic Charter with sort of uh, jaded populist eyes and you should look at it and be like how different is this than something George Soros would have wanted um, and it's you know it's not it's not that different at all um, so yeah no no these are these are very old problems um, and uh, the the way out is to reject liberalism and for starters that means rejecting the GOP uh, so yeah no I'm not I'm not depressed at all that Trump lost. Um, I, I, I am depressed in the sense that there are a lot of there are a lot of really nice people who really mean well, who believed and still believe in Trump, who feel very bad about the future of the country. Um, I feel very bad for them. You know, my parents are are in that camp. You know, they you know when when I talk to them and I say, "Oh, Trump betrayed us," they're like, "What are you talking about? He's owning the libs, right?" Um, <laughs> Because they're in their sixties, and you know they're they're you know they're immigrants to this country, but they're effectively they're effectively baby boomer, baby boomer Americans, um, and uh, you know they see all of the right people getting very angry at Trump, so they assume Trump's a good guy, which is you know fair enough. Yeah, um, so you know I, I feel bad about that. But. Yeah, that's that's the show he's putting on. I think one of one of his biggest problems and i guess like you said it was baked into the cake from before he was even voted in i mean we we knew about this you know he's a he's a reality tv star is his absolute need to be liked and you can't really be liked outside yeah. of the governing paradigm you know you can't you can't you know he what he had to do would have been completely go against the grain of everything that is holy to our current uh, you know secular religion yeah. and he yeah. was not capable of doing that because his main number one priority was to be you know famous liked have his ego stroked and yeah it's uh, it wasn't it wasn't going to happen um i want to ask you uh how do you see the next you know two four or five years what's going to happen i mean everything's up in the air at the moment you seem to have oh. a slightly more optimistic angle than the the boomer con so uh, predictions predictions <laughs> is a very dangerous game to get into um a vision, a vision, a positive vision for what, what might happen. Uh, the most, I mean, so I don't think this will happen with any uh, probability, but, you know, a positive thing that might happen. Um, so, you know, if you look at, if you look at the origins of the Republican Party, the first big national candidate was, you know, John C. Fremont, and he didn't win, um, but in, in his election, uh, you saw like the beginnings of this sort of realignment uh, between between the parties where, you know, the, the it, it was called the Native American Party, um, uh, which was sort of like the nationalist, uh, the, the know nothings, you know, that that party. They, they were kind of on the way out and, you know, it would become this duopoly of the Democrats versus the Republicans. Um, and the, the Whigs formerly had already 
uh, you know, left the stage. Um, we could see something like that. There are a lot of features of uh, parliamentarian politics that are very familiar to uh, Europeans, particularly people in the UK, that don't seem very possible in the US uh, within a legislature because it's just Democrats or Republicans, but it is, is very real in the kind of primary process. Um, it's very real in terms of the candidate selection, the party platforms that are you know, put out and being contested against. And uh, one, one place you see this are in these sort of uh, meta parties called caucuses. So, you know, you have the, the Freedom Caucus, uh, you have the, the National Justice Caucus, AOC's thing. Um, I, I don't know if I have the name right. Uh, but you, you have these sort of proto parties that have their own set of principles and their own leadership uh, that, you know, caucus around a, a, an issue or a set of issues. Um, it's possible that uh, you will see kind of uh, national, authentic nationalist ideas break away from the sort of, you know, free market capitalist, taxes are bad, socialism is bad, uh, non-thinking that has dominated the Republican Party for decades and has dominated what it means to be on the right for decades, um, since Buckley at least. Uh, very encouraged uh, by seeing people like Hawley explicitly say things, uh, you know, use, using the kind of the language of, of, of Reagan to talk about the need for a, a stimulus funding um, is, is a pretty novel twist. So I think that, you know, that could bear some positive fruit. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that make people feel upset, you know, disillusionment with the GOP, disillusionment with the United States, the, these things feel very sad in the present. Um, you know, but it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's like, it's like getting over a breakup, you know, it's the first step to, to something much better. So I'm, I'm optimistic about those things. Um, but we'll see, we'll see. Uh, and, and then besides politically, you know, culturally, um, do you, um, do you see any, anything change now that Trump's going to be out of office? I'm really curious what, you know, what the whole Trump anti-Trump apparatus is going to do now. Is there, you know, are they going to still be talking about Trump two years later or are they going to change? Oh, they'll have their, they'll have their demons. I, so, you know, if he, if he doesn't retire, you know, it's, It'll be exciting to see what happens on January 20th, you know, because if he if he just retires quietly, um, they will be sort of at a loss because they'll have to turn Holly or whoever into, into, into something uh, much greater than they are. Um, but I, I suspect he has enough grit in him left that uh, we'll, we'll see something like Trump TV. Um, we'll, we'll see. You know, if he doesn't get banned from Twitter, we'll, we'll probably see some hilarious tweets. Um, but you know, who knows, who knows, I, you know, um, but, but Trump is kind of, you know, he's sort of old news. Um, I don't, I don't expect any sort of national transformation politics to be emanating from Trumpism. Um, and Trumpism, I, I don't even think Trumpism is a real thing. Like, you know, what's, what's Trumpism's position on guns? Is it banning bump stocks? Is it banning, you know, is it banning pistol braces? Uh, is it being pro-gun? Allegedly it's being pro-gun. Who knows? Um, it's, you know, this, this problem of fake governance that, that Trump has, has perpetuated, uh, I'm, I'm just glad to be done with it. Uh, I don't care about Trump. Yeah. <laughs> and I, th I have a feeling that he'll, he'll fade out quite 
rapidly if if things go to to the uh, Kamala Biden plan in January. Um, I have a feeling that you know it's it's going to be relatively over with him. Um, yeah, there's there's not really any any big pull, but yeah, I don't know. It's hard to make predictions. Who knows? Because uh, there's there's still a lot of uh, a lot of stuff going on in the fraud camp. I would be surprised if anything actually happened now, but who knows? Um, you had a, a very interesting um, kind of idea around successor ideology and kind of this two this two polarity. I mean, we already have big tech being kind of you know replacing government and you know providing you with every every essential thing from stimulation to food to you know whatever whatever you need um and it's already kind of creating its own its own governance around you know people's mm -hmm. lives and then on the other hand you mentioned things like these almost neo luddite communities where you know like the amish the mormons you know orthodox jews who just kind of opted out of you know they've, they've been opting out of civilization but they kind of have their own um enclaves um is this are these the two poles that we have to see kind of either self-segregation or you you're being absorbed into the pod um or is there a third way to, to well I, i i don't think of them as poles yeah so this is this is an essay that i wrote uh incredibly pretentious title uh look look through the window not at it it's on medium you can google it um yeah so you know what what, what i mean by governance is that um you know the most the most powerful entity in classical rome was was rome right you know there were there were obviously you know big trading families that had you know members of the family in, in the senate you know there are obviously power struggles over who would command the roman military a very exciting history is available for stuff like that um but fundamentally the, the primary source of law and governance in people's lives was the imperium of rome Right? And this is this is what it meant for 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 Rome to be an empire. Um, the primary governor of what kind of information you're allowed to learn, um, what stuff you're allowed to buy, um, what stuff you're allowed to say, you know, that lies with entities like Google and and you know Twitter and Amazon and Netflix. Um, it doesn't really lie with the state and the spheres of life in which these massive, massive corporate entities, which don't really have a homeland, you know, they're, they're, they're called us corporations, but they're not really us corporations. They're not really an arm of the government. They don't really have an allegiance to America. You know, it should, it should, it should be obvious. Big tech doesn't have an allegiance to America, right? You know, a lot of its workforce is ultimately foreign. Um, they kind of govern our lives uh and and we are essentially subjects of them but then you also you have these interesting communities like uh curious joel you know islamberg uh new york uh, ave maria florida where um people have essentially coordinated around some set of governance uh you know notably all abrahamic faiths right you know these aren't secular communes or something Uh, and decided, you know, we're going to use the technology of a municipality, the, the, this governance technology of a municipality to sort of, you know, craft our own way of living. Um, and the Amish do that too, right? Um, and they, they make a great go of it, right? You know, they, they, 
essentially have created their own little mini governments. And I think that is kind of a model for how the American nation should approach uh, the U.S. government, right? You know, so uh, a good example of this are or Orthodox Jews in New York have something called the Shomrim, uh, which is kind of like a, a private uh, public safety patrol for their neighborhoods. And they work actually very closely with the, the New York City Police Department. Um, you know, it's not a hostile relationship at all. Um, and, and you see these kinds of things in, in lots of little private towns uh, where, you know, there, there is a larger police force. Uh, there is, you know, the state troopers, there are the sheriffs, but there are lots of little municipalities and towns that sort of, you know, maybe whether they're Orthodox Jews or not, that, that kind of have their own identity and play nice by the rules and they, they administer their own lives. And um, there's a lot of opportunity there uh, for Americans to sort of get out from under, you know, this, this crushing weight of, of, of liberalism, you know, technologically, there are a lot of opportunities for exit. Um, in terms of organization, there are a lot of opportunities for exit. And, and what I'm getting at in, in, in that essay is that exit from the state is a whole lot better than pretending you can get a voice in the state because you really can't assert voice. Um, you know, voice is, is having say. Voice is voting for representatives and getting your laws passed and doing all of that. And every time people try to exert that in a way that's contrary to liberalism, they basically just get canceled. Exactly. Um, exactly. So rather than pursuing voice, people should really just pursue exit. Yeah. And I feel like you already are kind of making a contribution in this space. I know you work in kind of the idea of either promoting remote work or kind of creating these opportunities for, for either exit or exit or at least independence for people. So yeah, if you if you want to say a bit about that, I mean, if I think it's super interesting. I'm one of these remote workers. I mean, I've moved back to, to Romania to Transylvania because yeah, I can because uh, I have yeah. the opportunity. Um, and you know, it's it's not total exit from civilization. I'm obviously very plugged in. But uh, it's, um, yeah, I've got so much more optionality, you know, over my time over my life. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's something that, you know, as many people as possible should be able to access. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one one misconception is that, you know, unless I'm unless I'm a code monkey, you know, spending hours just, you know, clacking away at a keyboard, uh, you know, teaching refugees JavaScript, uh, as, as the phrase goes, you know, un un unless I'm doing that, there's no way I can do remote work. Well, you know, it's, it, you know, pre pre pandemic, it's true that the balance of jobs that was done remotely was, was geared much more towards, you know, sort of traditional technical roles. But um, you know, some of the biggest companies on earth have been forced to be completely remote uh, for many months now, you know, many, many quarters. Um, and even in a technological firm, um, like a firm that's really producing a technical product like Amazon or like Google, uh, there are loads of people who are not software engineers and they're doing everything from, you know, they're, they're legal counsel, they're lawyers and paralegals, they're uh, operations managers, their, you know, their customer support, you know, every kind of job that you can think of being done on a computer is able to be done remotely. And in the real world, we finally had it happen. There was something that forced them to be remote. Um, and, 
this this means a couple of things. One of the things that it means is that you don't need to live in the pod and eat the bugs, right? You don't need if you if you can get one of these jobs, you do not need to live in a big American city in a tiny apartment and be miserable, which is a huge plus. It also means you don't need to relocate away from family. Um, and it, it means you get more time in your day to, uh, you know, obviously read my Twitter feed and, and other illegal ideas. Um, so these are, these are all sorts of like, you know, good things. But basically what, what I, what I do is I ask people to send me, um, simplest resume they can. And of course, obviously should, should go without saying, please anonymize it. Um, you don't have to, but you know, I am fundamentally a random person on the internet. You know, don't mail me PII. Um, you know, don't don't send me you know your mother's maiden name and your, your social security information. That's this don't don't do that. Um, I go through probably fifty resumes a day, and I try and find people who like <laughs> followed the instructions, uh, didn't send me a crazy email, uh, didn't didn't send me. I, I, I get a lot of weird emails now. Um, I've gotten, you know, emails that range from, you know, erotic to scatological. And it's just, it's very weird. I, you know, there's, it's very weird. Um, you know, I'm, so a lot of this, um, it's just deleting junk. And, uh, but occasionally, and I hope it becomes more frequent than occasionally, uh, you know, I'll get a very clear resume that's like, you know, look, I'm a you know, 19 year old college sophomore. Uh, I know how to do these things. I don't know how to do these things. Here are my SAT scores. What can I do? And um, essentially, I try to have a conversation with this person. It's like, well, you know, what kind of industries do you like? What what do you like? Um, and uh, it's it's not easy, but it's it's a lot easier than people might think to find roles where you know the hiring manager for that role is more than willing to hire someone who maybe isn't that experienced in the position, uh, maybe isn't that experienced in the industry, uh, might even be changing their careers, um, but is willing to do the work and can prove that they can do the work. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff that I ask people to do if they're interested is like, you know, I'll give them a lot of exercises in SQL. I'll give them a lot of exercises in Excel. I'll give them a lot of exercises in, uh, you know, just, being being responsible for information, um, you know, reporting on tasks. And it's like it's like kind of a kind of a week, several several weeks to a month long thing, uh, where essentially I'm just getting a feel for for how serious this person is about learning things and teaching themselves things. And uh, and then I'll start sending them job recommendations. Um, you know, apply to this, apply to this, apply to this. And I, you know, it's it it makes me feel really really good to. Obviously, I'm not, you know, only limiting myself to young people, but it makes me feel really, really good when I get the emails that say, yeah, you helped me get a job. And it's like, you know, a 19 or a 20 year old that has no student debt, right? You know, because you like, you know, if, if you can, if you can avoid college debt and you can get a job, even if it's not a great job where you're living at home and you're, you're being paid money. Uh, and you don't have debt and you're not paying rent to some stupid landlord in an expensive city, you're living, you're living the dream. You're living the dream. And it's, you know, I, if I could go back a decade and have no, no student debt, be living with my parents and earn money working part of the, essentially part of the day on the computer, um, it was just, it's just game over. You, you, you totally, 
you've totally unplugged yourself from huge wastes of time, huge wastes of money. Uh, you know, don't spend the money, save it all, you know, buy yourself a house. Um, I am not entirely sure how I will scale it up. Uh, I am just one person. Frankly, some, <laughs> some, some, you know, a, a substantial amount of the emails are just spam. Um, but there's got to be a way to do it. And I will figure that out. Um, maybe it won't be done as Indian Bronson for various reasons. Um, but, <laughs> because of all know, the scatological stuff yeah, you get. Yeah, you know, there, 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 there are a lot of there are a lot of things about yeah, there, there are a lot of reasons to not do it as a as a as an anonymous uh, as an anonymous uh, very online poster. Uh, there are a lot of reasons, um, but uh, yeah, no, it's 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 one of those things that provides many people the ability to sort of exit from uh, a lot of a lot of the negatives of the modern world, uh, which which are unfortunately concentrated in cities. Um, it's not to say urbanism is necessarily bad, but it, it comes with a lot of that. Yeah, I think you know I've been I've been on a, on the hiring end quite a few times, and I have to say you know the enthusiasm and willingness to learn is number one priority for anyone I hire by by a mile. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, I've, I've, you know, <laughs> I've seen this not be a priority and it just went south in, in like maybe two weeks. And, you know, that's number one. And then the rest of it you can fill in. If you have someone who's enthusiastic and is really keen to discover stuff, and especially if they're young, I mean, that's kind of the, the hormonal yeah. profile fits with enthusiasm. So, yeah, it's, it's super useful. Um, in, in terms of, of, you know, remote work i think the the only kind of limitation that i've seen is you know because because i've i've lived in these big cities and for me that was kind of the the access i know that's what that that's what you're working on mm -hmm. on kind of yeah. um for me i mean most of the jobs that i got were because i knew someone and they knew someone and they kind yeah. of trusted me it's, it's very it's very hard to replicate the network effects of living in a large city um yeah so i i lived Kind of in between New York and DC for a decade, and yeah, no, whether whether it's a, a real job or like a one-off consulting thing, it's very very difficult to uh, to replicate that. Um, so one of one of the thoughts that I had is that you know the main pipeline to you know because because you know basically when when an employer or like a you know someone screening resumes or you know when when HR comes to you and they say here are the people that pass the phone screen. You know, would you like to set up a Zoom call to maybe hire one of these people? Um, in a lot of those sorts of roles, uh, the gatekeeping function is like, does this person have a college degree and do they sound normal on a phone? And that's really to look for executive function and not being a psycho. And once you've proven, and college is a bad way to do it, it's a very expensive way to do it, but once you've proven that you uh, aren't, you know, essentially aren't a lump on a log, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, lazy and, and dumb, uh, and you're not a psycho, um, people are usually pretty willing to hear you out and uh, give you a chance at least for an interview. Um, so even if it's very difficult to kind of, uh, replicate the pathway to get, you know, hey, a buddy of mine is hiring for this and I'm going to tell you about it because we're at this bar because we hang out in person. Uh, if, even if it's very difficult to replicate that, 
there are a lot of features of the pipeline of going from being a new grad to being a you know junior hire that have nothing to do with an in-person interaction. Um, so turning that process into something that is much more accessible to people who don't live anywhere near New York, who don't live anywhere near San Francisco or DC or whatever, um, that's that's kind of what I'm most interested in. Um, yeah, and yeah. it's you know it's it's an invaluable service uh, if you know if you get the if you get the combination right if the recipe if the recipe works because I mean it's it's even surprising I mean you know my company was hiring now throughout the throughout the COVID crisis and you know your expectation would be that oh this is this is prime time for for hiring people obviously because of the the situation mm -hmm. it's it was really hard especially because you didn't have those you know those networks uh they weren't active yeah. you know yeah people weren't really interacting and it was quite i feel like a bit harder to hire now than it was before because mm -hmm. essentially it's just you and you know the wall of uh, linkedin applications from you know people you know we didn't get any scat stuff but we did get some, some very random stuff through for yeah applications. don't don't use your anonymous twitter handle with uh, with an with an email and say dm or email me anything uh yeah I Highly in, in hindsight, I highly recommend against doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, I don't have one, <laughs> which is a different. It's a different conversation as well. Because I mean, I've kind of, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm a bit of a. I'm kind of braving it a little bit by, you know, trying to be a little bit out there and, you know, being a so-called face fag on Twitter. I'm, uh, as, you know, yeah, real name, real face. That's real uh, name, real boy. face. Yeah. Oh boy. Oh boy. But it's just because I'm I'm completely oblivious, and I feel like that could you know work to my advantage, or you know could just mean you can, my. You can always you can always play the the naive foreigner card where you're like I didn't know what this meant in English, you know. Exactly. I, that's that's the card I've been playing my whole life, and it's, it's worked pretty well for me. Um, yeah. I mean, I I hope my my intersectional stack of being a a you know far flung immigrant, you know naive woman, blonde. Oh God! You know, maybe well, maybe blonde, it helps. Blonde hair, blue eyed means you're you're out of you're out of the intersectionality stack. Oh guys, but I'm like my uh, you know my ancestors were serfs. Anyone? No? Does that help? Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't count. Doesn't count. God damn it! Well, um, you know, I'm I'm just braving it. I'm I'm curious to see what your position is on um, on anonymity on the internet. Is this the future? Will everyone have an anime avatar? Uh, because we'll just consume ourselves and you know people like me who are who are naive enough to think that you know the internet is a benign place will get spit out by the uh, the upcoming tide is this yeah a... i would i would highly recommend again if you know don't do what don't do what kashuda is doing don't use your real name and real face on the internet um yeah no i i mean it's it's kind of already the case that um it's it's kind of already the case that uh, people with something interesting to say are finding it very very uh, harmful to their health and well-being to to say that with their own name and face. You know, recently there was a paper retracted from Nature, where uh, and the lead author of this study was a female, um, uh, and the, the the paper was exploring the effect of uh, early career mentorship um, on the. Uh, you, you could say academic viability of a young scientist career. And it turns out that on average, um, being mentored by a male scientist is better for a career than being mentored by a female scientist. Um, and there are a lot of, you know, 
if you if you if you take the ultra sexist view of women dumb, right? You know, then you know, sure. But uh, you know, there are a lot of a lot of reasons you construct that are very woke uh, to explain this disparity. There are a lot of things that you could say. Oh, well, you know, this means that we need to we need to spend more money on the programs to to have better female mentorship. You know, it's not. You know that fact itself is not really an indictment of of female mentorship of, of early scientists, but uh, Nature retracted the paper. Uh, basically, a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of academics, wrote in and said, "We're very angry, and we're going to continue to be angry unless you retract it." And uh, you know what's what's going to happen to those uh, to those two authors now uh, on the you know the, the, you know. What's going to happen to people that you know study this sorts of thing in uh, in social sciences? Well, essentially, they'll learn that if you want to get your papers published and not re you know publicly retracted by a journal calling you evil, uh, Nature being one of the the biggest scientific journals there is, uh, you should probably avoid certain taboo topics, right? Um, so this you know it, it's not I I don't think we're going to see a lot of uh, anonymously published heterodox social science uh, besides what we already have. Um, but I, I don't think it's a good idea in general to offend the sensibilities of a system that can destroy your income and, uh, you know, hurt, harm your family by doing that um, if you can avoid it. Like, it's, you know, there's, I, I, I don't see that much upside in getting canceled or risking getting canceled yeah. um i think for, for from my perspective i mean obviously this is you know <laughs> i'm already in this so you know it's kind of yeah like maybe a self-flattering perspective but I, I really do think there is a bit of a, a difference in impact between you know own own face own name and uh, and an anonymous profile i mean the, the best stuff on on twitter is generated by anonymous profiles um for sure because of you know the constraints that we we listed, but yeah. um, I I really to be honest I mean I get I get messages almost every day from people you know just saying that you know they've they've I don't know this sounds pretty pompous but they they're a bit heartened by the fact you know that people are are out there and standing yeah up. yeah and well I I, I will yeah. say you know any kind of change that happens in the real world um, is not going to be led by people with uh, you know just anonymous avatars and funny handles, right? It's, you know, actual change in the real world, political change, structural change, things like that, you know, stuff besides, um, you know, st stuff besides the very mundane, uh, actual leadership, that will not be anonymous, for sure. Um, and that's not just political leadership, that's kind of, you know, thought leadership, um, that's, uh, you know, academic leadership that will be done by people who are using their real name, their real face. Um, so for, for the great majority of us, uh, you know, it's, it's a bad calculation to go real name, real face, at least too early. Um, because being in a position of leadership and, and all the things that that comes with, including the cancellation uh, risk is not something that I think the majority of people on the internet should should risk yeah. um, I, I agree yeah. with that i think you know yeah you know i'll look out for number one that's that's the main thing and yeah it's um it, it was it was kind of a you know not necessarily a struggle but i you know obviously i thought about it because it is you know it's not just something that yeah one should engage in lightly um 
Yeah, but also, to be honest, I mean, this this whole, you know, coming on onto the internet and, you know, just being out there is is also a result of frustration. I mean, I've, I've worked in, you know, in tech-ish circles in London, a super woke environment for so long that, you know, it's just, I kind of cracked a little bit. I yeah. And yeah. this is the result. And um, yeah, I don't know. I feel, I feel, I feel good. I feel like, you know, I feel like I've got so much opportunity out of this. It could also obviously mean, you know, a complete apocalyptic demise. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm, I'm here for it. You know, this is what I want to do. And yeah, I, yeah, hope for the best. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, uh, this is a good point to pivot to the other subject that I want to chat to you about, which I think you have lots of amazing insights about. And this is something I'm, I'm kind of right about as well. Um, dating, dating, the, uh, the relationship between uh, the male of the species and the female. And it's, um, it's, you know, terribly fraught nature at the moment. Um, yeah. and I know your, your contributions tend to be a little bit bleak, but not, not necessarily because, you know, you're, you're, they are, they are kind of bleak, aren't they? A little well, bit. So I, I, I went on, I went on a date with, um, one of our mutuals. Uh, very, very friendly day. It was, you know, there were, uh, there were no, there were no moves made. Uh, she, she's, she's a nice girl. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, she was, she was talking about, uh, she, she was just like thrilled I wasn't an axe murderer. But so, you know, I, I, I understand that I can project kind of a, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not an autist schizo, uh, you know, incel mass shooter, although I, you know, I play one on the internet. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, it's it, I, I, I understand why a lot of, of what I write sounds very bleak, but it's um, you know it, it's it's not it's not all terrible, right? You know, there are a lot of you know I'm I'm obviously on the side of uh, uh, you know this is partly why no moves were made. Um, I'm I'm obviously not on the side of uh, of sex positivity. I'm not on the side of uh, the sexual revolution being a good thing. Um, but I, I don't think anyone could argue that the mainstream of gender relationships and sex today, uh, takes a rosy, uncritical, uh, hunky dory view of, of the situation most people find themselves in. Um, I think if you surveyed, uh, I'm not sure how old you are. How old are you? I am 32. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm 30. So just recently became 30. So I think if you surveyed people between the ages of like 25 and 35, uh, you would not get a positive answer from them on the state of gender relations. Whereas a decade ago or two decades ago, I think people would still largely be fooling themselves into thinking, ah, yes, this newfound freedom that we have is a very good thing. Um, so even though things are, you know, you can, you can kind of compare this to, to my answer on the political question, even though things are very bleak, even though things seem very depressive and, you know, kind of terrible, uh, admitting and acknowledging those things is sort of the first step towards change. Um, and so exit. I'm, I'm, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of optimistic in that sense that, you know, I, you know, I know, you know, I, 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 I really don't like it when I see crazy misogynist things. Um, cause like I, I know and work with and am related to 
uh, have dated, considered marrying, you know, lots and lots of essentially young college educated women. And there's nothing sadder than talking to one of your female friends and her basically telling you that she's afraid she's going to end up alone. Um, because for a lot of them, uh, you can see very clearly how they might indeed end up alone. And yeah. uh, it's very, very hard to have, you know, single female friends who are, you know, beautiful, intelligent, attractive. No, I, 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 I joke, you know, I don't have any ugly or dumb female friends because life is too short. Right? You know, why would, why would you bother doing that? Uh, it's very, very hard to see these people wrestling with these things. Um, yeah. they're, they're not, they're not on a mission to make young men miserable. They just kind of don't know what to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I but, mean, it, it's, it's weird for someone who thinks about this stuff a lot. You know, if a, if a female friend comes to me and asks me for advice, I literally do not know what to tell her because, you know, it would require me changing, you know, t you know, 30 years of conditioning and, you know, rearranging, <laughs> you know, she, I'll, I'll, I would need like two months of instruction and, and apprenticeship for her to kind of yeah. Yeah. get the, the thing. Um, and it's really terrible because, you know, the, our priors are just so different that, you know, I, I, I don't know what to tell you. You know, people ask me like, oh, you're married, you know, what's, what's the deal? How did you did it? How did you do it? I have a completely different mindset to you. That's why I did it. Um, yeah, it's um, it's 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 quite bleak from that perspective. Now, to be honest, I think why I I call your stuff bleak is because I agree with it, and yeah. I I think you know a bit of my shtick now on the internet is to kind of try to tell people, oh, there there is a different way. There is another way. Come on, yeah, follow me. Yeah. I'm the Pied Piper here, but I know how difficult it is and almost impossible. Yeah. For, to convey the the Pied Piper way, but yeah, it's 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 quite yeah. So that's why that's a big part of why I wanted to chat to you, and maybe you could illuminate some some strategies here. But I don't know if they yeah, exist. I think it's this is gonna sound very bleak. I think it's too late for a lot of people. Um, <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I, I promise, I promise, this is going somewhere nice. Yeah, no, I I think I think it's too late for a lot of people. Yeah, like if you if you really start reading. Um, so there, there's something there's something called a, a geriatric pregnancy. They're changing these words in in the U.S. They're they're trying to say just you know advanced maternal age or something. Um, if you if you really dig down deep into uh, the medical literature, you know, these women who are in their late 30s, early 40s, trying to have kids are really just I mean they're fooling themselves. You know it's just it's it's either not going to happen or it's going to happen with significant complications. Um, and realistically, the best time to have kids, uh, if you're, if you're, a, if you're a woman is in your early twenties, you know, and it's not, it's not an accident that, um, you know, there's this great graph where it's like, you know, the age of men versus the age of the women that look best to them. And, uh, <laughs> it's, 22. Just, it, it's just a <laughs> lot, it's just a line of guys as they age saying, yeah, about 22, right. You know, um, you know, you can, you can, you can go the full, you can go the full, like, sort of bro science incel route, which, which, by the way, is very revealing. I mean, there are a lot of smart guys, uh, I, I see on Twitter doing this. And you can, you can start reading about ovarian reserve and sperm motility and, you know, you know, what, what, what the rate of, uh, of mutations is after a certain age. And, you know, advanced paternal age has this graph and advanced maternal age has that graph in terms of, you know, two outcomes. And, 
Um, but uh, the, the, the long and short of it is that, uh, you know, we, we changed something um, that shouldn't have been changed uh, that Heather McDonald's uh, writing in uh, City Journal called sort of the sexual default, which is that for you know, every kind of civilization of note, every sort of traditional human society, cross-culturally, the sexual default is no sex before marriage. And what that means is that a man's access to sexual resources, uh, essentially a sexual partner, um, is predicated on being materially worthwhile for marriage. And a woman's access to material stability is being worth marrying. And if you have those two things sort of in union, you know, everything's okay. Because what it means is that you get kind of this pairing of every man for every woman. Not exactly. But you get most men with a stake in a, in a genetic future who will labor for the broader society. And what we have now is kind of the exact opposite of that. Um, so there's this, there's this prolific uh, writer, um, Dalrock, who, who, whose blog you should read because he's finally stopped writing. You know, Christian guy, trained as an economist, married father, happily married. You know, he, he had this sort of prediction running that um, by the 2020s, we would start to see the never married proportion of women explode. And we would also see men beginning to earn and work more like women traditionally. Their, their participation in the labor force would be more like people sort of just eking out a subsistence. And you'd see lots of overeducated, highly educated women who are, who are turning up single. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. And so I, I think broadly, it's kind of too late for all of these people. You know, you could try to arrange marriages with the, uh, you know, the clapped out career women and the, you know, the incel men, you could try and, you could try and force them together. But I have a sneaking suspicion, neither of those populations would like each other very much. Um, but yeah. what it does also mean is that, you know, as time goes on, as the baby boomers, you know, essentially our parents' generation begins to pass, uh, people who are younger than the millennials, the zoomers and, and those after, they will get kind of a front row seat seeing societal dysfunction they will get a very very clear picture of what it means to be 40 and not have a family um and young people are a lot more canny than we give them credit for they they really do you know i, I I'm, I'm talking like they're another species like it wasn't so long ago that i was in high school it wasn't so long ago that you're in high school you know we we have these memories of sort of seeing the world around us and how things work and what the life script is. And okay, well, better apply to colleges now because, you know, that's what I should do. You know, they are kind of seeing these things in flux and they're making their own calculations. And I think a lot of them will realize that uh, the kind of, you know, the, the, the lifestyle that was pushed on so many young people uh, from the sort of early to mid 2000s through through now when we finally got this big disruptive event like COVID, um, they'll see that it was kind of bullshit. This is actually a terrible thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a hyper, it's this crazy intensification of the same sort of sexual revolution paradigm. And it, it didn't really lead to anything good. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful in that sense uh, that I think, you know, even if it's too late to get, you know, think, think about how many unmarried 35, you know, and up year old women there are. It's, it's a huge number. And CNN says it's the largest number ever. 
Uh, I think it's kind of too late for them to get married. Um, it's too late for a lot of them to have kids. Um, but at least that damage is being limited to one section of the national population. It's not like a recurring thing in each age cohort. Uh, so I don't know if that's actually very optimistic, but that's kind of what I see happening. Yeah. So you want it to kind of go off the rails or if you see it go off the rails so profoundly. Well, that you know, it's, uh, not a, it's not a want thing, right? You know, this yeah. is and this is this is the critique made of, of accelerationists on a lot of topics is that like, oh, so you want Biden to win? Well, it's not, you know, I obviously, you know, I obviously don't want Biden to win, you know, I, or Kamala Harris. Yeah. You know. um, but it's it's a more structurally favored outcome. And navigating that outcome correctly offers a lot of opportunity that a perpetuation of the current paradigm wouldn't allow. Yeah. Um, so better to have a, a intense morality tale to serve as, uh, you know, as, as a guide for the future and to, to scare future generations straight than to continue on this. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, a, it's, like, it's like the ghost of Christmas future scaring Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, that's, that's a better situation than sort of just, you know, continuing on in what we have now. But you know what, I, what my hope is? Because um, there's, there's always a, a contrast between, you know, what actually happens in, historically and how it's interpreted. And I see a lot of, you know, the you know, women that I know who are in this cohort, you know, the, the, the lost generation, that interpret life through a lens so skewed um, that they themselves, I don't think they can draw this conclusion. I don't think they, you know, the, the cognitive dissonance is too profound. And I see them retreating into, you know, more and more, you know, deranged politics and, you know, pussy hats and, and you know, shrieking weird, you know, offshoots of feminism. Um, and I really do hope that the people watching this don't do the same. I hope the the morality tale is strong enough to convince people that man, you know, is is it the patriarchy that that did this or is it? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, well, with 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 a lot of things, and this is kind of the, the theme running through the uh, the political essay is that, um, you know, everyone everyone who looks around at at you know the circumstances of modernity, there it's it's kind of like being in a building in like a structural fire, right? Like you obviously. It's, it's not great. You know, you're not, you're not the, uh, you're not that like comic dog drinking tea saying, you know, this is fine. Uh, you know, that's not, that's not the, that's not the feeling that anyone has, but it's very hard to ask people to just sort of jump out of the 10th floor window, uh, onto just like concrete, you know, by saying, Hey, you're going to burn to death if you, if you stay here, you're going to die of smoke inhalation. Um, we, it's, it's incumbent on us to sort of create the structures like, you know, the, the, the mattress that's pushed into position or the net or whatever, you know, it's, it's incumbent on us to kind of create these alternatives for people to exit. Um, because there's no, because otherwise what they're going to do, um, now I use, I use this analogy on, on Confot's podcast is like, otherwise what people are going to do is they're going to retreat repeatedly to kind of the next room and they're going to sort of like hunker down and hope that maybe the fire will go out. And in, in actual building fires, a lot of people do that. Most people don't actually die of being burned to death. They die of smoke inhalation uh, and they get trapped and they're just sort of, you know, hiding away from the fire, but then they just, they suffocate. Um, and that has happened to essentially every reactionary movement uh, that is trying to find voice and is trying to find a way to counter propagandize 
uh, the world around it instead of building something new to escape into. And, you know, you know, I, I feel really bad when I see things like uh, March for Life or whatever, because they are trying to counter propagandize the possibility of just sexual promiscuity. And it doesn't matter how many ultrasound buses you have, you know, you're not going to build a better alternative than sex with a lot of people. Uh, you're not, excuse me, you're not going to build better propaganda than having sex with a lot of people. But you can build a better life alternative than, you know, sort of the false promise of sex with a lot of people. You know, you can't you can build that. You know, imagine all of the March for Life money going into subsidizing, you know, homes and diapers for, you know, young couples to get married and have babies. I think that would be a much better use of the money. Um, but there's they're sort of stuck on the propaganda mission. It feels very sexy to have, you know, a, a, a big counter voice thing but um you really can't win that battle because none of the billionaires are on your side right they're they're in fact they're explicitly on the opposite side um so yeah, yeah it, you know it's there there are a lot of ways out of this i think uh some are real some are uh you know not so real but they can all be built um and and it's it's building those alternatives uh, that I, I think people should focus their effort on. Yeah, that's essentially what I've been thinking about in regards to dating and, and actually to, to many more things like sex work and, you know, all of this, you know, rampant liberalism that we're seeing is, you know, the, the value of social coordination. It's been kind of my, my shtick lately. It's the idea that, you know, it's because everyone's kind of trained by liberalism to be a defector to the, the core society that, you know, we actually, you know, we all belong to. Um, the, the difficulty of, of aligning on, on new, you know, exit options is this thing of social coordination. It's kind of like finding the others, finding people who are committed enough to not defect. Because if you have this huge, big pole of, of you know, please come, you know, in, indulge your most base desires here in the, in the, in the agora of, of, of constant orgy, um, it's really hard to create, you know, effective exit without, you know, people who are, you know, like you said, you know, deeply immersed in Abrahamic traditions or things like that. Um, yeah, you, you can't tell people to not eat cake and just have nothing. But if you, if you, you know, if you have the, if you have the, the, the chicken breast and broccoli just sort of ready to go and right there or whatever, you know, you, you, you've got a chance. Um, but if you're just asking them to put the cake down, uh, good luck. Yeah. And I think there needs to be something tied into, you know, into aesthetics, into, you know, just creating a positive vision for the future. You know, Peter Thiel mm -hmm. talks about this, you know, that, you know, the, the future at the moment has, has no positive vision. You know, there's no, you know, inspiring space missions, you know, there you can either be, you know, a like he said, um, I think like Islamist extremist, because that's kind of like this millenarian vision, or you can be someone who's obsessed with recycling or, you know, I don't know, green, green stuff. Uh, and those are the kind of the two relatively positive visions, inspiring visions for the future. But the rest of it, the West doesn't really have anything. Uh, and I think partly that's, that's why all these, you know, social justice offshoots are really popular, because they do offer a little bit of a, you know, of a Kind of eschatological view of, of what's going on you know once yeah you... they, they 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 offer a telos and they offer specifically uh like an atelic telos you know they they offer an unending end um you know permanent revolution there's always uh you know there's all there's always one more rule to break 
with uh, with with them, and there's always one more taboo to transgress. Um, whereas whereas you know reactionary politics, I think I you know I forget the exact verbiage, but um, you know Buckley's uh, statement in the founding of of the National Review was like you know we are we are people who stand athwart history. Uh, at a time when few were inclined to listen or something like that. And you get this image of this guy, you know, you know, shouting stop towards this, like this iceberg, this glacier moving over him. Um, and that's a really pathetic, uh, situation to be in. And, and that, that, you know, that, you know, if there's anything that defines the right, that's what defines it. Um, it's not really a political oppositional force to what's called the left, which is just all politics, all society. Um, but if there's anything that defines the right, uh, it's, it's that sort of, if, you know, this, this ineffectual, um, pleading, you know, bleeding nothing, uh, that, that really has no right or means to rule. Um, because it doesn't have a positive vision for the future, you know, it, you know, if, if, if that dog caught the car, it wouldn't know what to do with it. Um, yeah. So, you know. Exactly. And I think that's why, you know, you don't really see anyone on the right, any, you know, public figure on the right, you know, planting a flag and saying, you know, this is, this is, you know, where we are. Um, and that's kind of my, my, my issue with, with centrism as well. It's, you know, <laughs> centrism is a, well, is the, a... The, centrist, the centrist people are all liberal. They're all capital L liberals, right? You yeah. know, they can't really... Um, you know, I, I pick on her a lot in examples because, you know, I don't know her personally, so I, I feel better doing it. Um, you know, and if, if I, if I criticize too, you know, if I, if I criticize, if I criticize the white, if I criticize people I've, I've been on, uh, I've been on a Zoom call with, I feel bad. Um, but, you know, Christina Hoff Summers, uh, uh, AI fellow, I don't know if she's still at AI. She might be. Um, you know, she, she has a lot of critiques of feminism. She has a lot of critiques of the woke and stuff like that. But ultimately what she wants is a kind of a return to the feminism and the liberalism of her youth because it served her very well. Um, but the, the, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these former manifestations of liberalism were kind of always going to be a transition state. And if you, you know, if that is the tradition you return to, you know, V, V substituted for you or not. Um, it, it's, it's just going to take you back here. And so a lot of, a lot of the things that people want to return to are really not worth returning to at all. And, and that's, that's the problem with centrists. You know, they, they conceive of these two axes of this is too far right and this is too far left. And I'm nicely in the middle and they, they don't understand that there's, you know, this is actually uh, this. You know, this reference frame has some sort of motion to it. Um, you know, it's, it's leading somewhere, and that's why they get mistaken for being conservative so often because they just they keep missing the boat on on where everything is going. Yeah, uh, that's, I, I keep hearing people just almost say, "Oh, 2010. Yeah, that's that's the Goldilocks zone. That's yeah. <laughs> that's where we should go back to." And I'm like, this is just is just painfully naive. <laughs> you're, you know, you're you're liberal in 2010. You know, now you're a conservative, and in 10 years you're a reactionary. Like, that's that's not a position. Yeah. Before we wrap up here, is there anything you would like to uh, tell us about what you're working on? Something you would like to plug, promote? Oh yeah, sure. So you know, obviously, uh, if you can, send me a resume, SAT scores. Um, anonymized 
uh, I'd, you know, I'd love to help you try and get a job if I can, um, or at least point you in the direction of uh, really, really good resources that you can use to, to teach yourself uh, certain skills. Um, otherwise, yeah, no, I, I, I would say, you know, uh, keep, keep, keep posting, keep reading. Um, you know, don't, uh, don't, don't believe the jive that you hear about, uh, about Dominion servers and Trump coming to rescue you with the cavalry. Uh, that's all garbage. Uh, the, I, I think the most, you know, I'm, I, I'm obviously very sympathetic to, to nationalists. And I, I would say if you're an American nationalist, the most important thing that you can do politically is to always be on the lookout for whomever is going to deliver in your material interests and provide you a, a material route of exit and not, not so much, you know, some, some pay on to, to, to voice, you know, if they're, if they're opposing the things that are like, you know, they're opposed to trans kids in sports or whatever. That's that's all fine. But uh, think more about material exit than voice and how you are going to navigate the next five to ten years of your life and what that will take in terms of material resources. That's really the most important thing uh, for you to focus on. Yeah, yeah. I completely agree. Oh, I actually remembered I have a question that I forgot to ask you, which I'm trying to ask everyone. So, you know, one oh, of those... Of course traditional questions of the show um you know is there someone that you would consider a a quite deeply subversive thinker that's not really on the um on in i mean definitely not in the mainstream but it's not really on people's radars that you think you know should should get a little bit of a signal boost Ooh, um do they have to be alive not really i mean if they have a you know a Ooh. significant opus that people should look into why not well it's all it's all in marathi so i don't know if they could you know i would say read savarkar um that's probably not super helpful um or head go out but like you know um translate hmm. <laughs> translate his, yeah, his these works are, these are these are old these are old indian uh marathi uh nationalists uh, who, who influenced my thinking a lot. Um, yeah, probably, actually, this is probably not a very helpful recommendation because uh, I, I have a sneaking suspicion most of my audience is uh, not from Maharashtra. Um, hmm. who, who's a very subversive thinker that you should read? Well, I found out about George, Dal yeah, Dalrock you know from you. George, George Soros. Everyone should actually, I'm un unironically saying this, um, you should read you should read some of George Soros's books um, because he he has basically a completely opposite value structure to you. Um, he does not want the things that you want. Uh, you know, obviously, he is funding the BLM protests and all of those things. Uh, but I don't think there is someone who has put down more of his thinking and understands the world in terms of systems interactions better than George Soros. So I would say yeah, if you want to be really subversive in, in the spirit of the podcast as a, as a, as a, as a person of the right, um, you should read some George Soros. It will do. I mean, it sounds, uh, sounds like, a, <laughs> like a, you know, Sunday, Sunday read. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on. It was a pleasure. Take care. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, 
and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 